This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. All right. Good morning, everybody. All right, let's be honest. How many of you usually come to the 830 service, but you're here at 10? Come on. Yeah, man, I hear you. I hear you. I missed your first service, but we're together now, and I'm so excited to share some time with you. Uh, Welcome. You made it. You don't have to do that again for a whole other year. So praise God that it only happens once a year where we lose that hour, and pretty soon we'll be gaining it back, which is very exciting. For some of you who don't know how to change your clocks on your car, uh, this is really good. Like six more months? your clock will be right again. So you got to feel good about that. Uh, Hey, when you walked in, you should have received a program. Inside of it are two things you're going to want to have. One is that card that says start here. It's our connection card. It helps us stay connected to each other. You definitely want to get this filled out today because uh, I'm going to be guiding us to some areas to partner together moving forward. So you're going to want to have that filled out. We'll use it a little later. The other thing you're going to want are our teaching notes. Uh, They've got some of the Bible verses we're looking at, some of the thoughts I have Uh, as we go together today. And by the way, if we haven't met yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I get to guide us for the next, I don't know, 40 minutes or so as we continue to engage with God. And and I want to warn you today, uh, first service, I was standing on the side stage like I usually do, worshiping and praying right before uh, I came out on stage, last song of the morning. And right as I was praying, I got this pit in my stomach and my hands started to sweat. I thought I was going to throw up. And uh, I asked God, what's going on? And I sensed God's spirit uh, just impress upon me. I don't want you to take your notes on stage today. I don't want, and I've never done this before. Uh, I don't want you to tell people something today. I want you to have a conversation with our church today. And so with my palms sweating, I brought my iPad out on stage with my sermon and my notes thinking, I, no, I'm not going not gonna to leave it because it's like my baby blanket, right? Uh, and then I thought, no, this is, this is what God has. So I put my sermon down. And this is the first time this has ever happened in like, I don't know, 18 years of ministry. So yeah, well, <laughs> don't say that yet, <laughs> okay? Uh, that means a couple of things. One, I, I, I'm just going to talk to you about something that's on my heart, deeply on my heart. Two, uh, it might get a little squirrely because you know me, even when I have my notes, things come out. I don't even have notes today. We're just going to talk because I think God has something for us today as we continue on our series, Top Shelf Jesus. And this series spawned from uh, this big idea that, that God is kind of, in many of our minds, like a delicious bottle of top shelf alcohol. And here's what I mean by that. When you think about top shelf alcohol, that's the stuff behind the bartender on the top shelf that is really expensive. It's the good stuff. Um, Top shelf alcohol is not for everyday consumption. It's only for special occasions. It's only for a select group of people, people who have a lot of money or people who have a lot of debt because they bought too much top shelf alcohol. Uh, And it can only be accessed by a very select group, the bartenders. You can't reach up and grab it yourself and take a swig only by a select group. And in a lot of ways, because God is so big and vast and powerful and, and beautifully creative and altogether other than us, in some ways, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to put God on the top shelf of our lives, to assume that God is only for special occasions, Christmas and Easter, uh, to assume that God is only really for a select group of people, the super holy have access to God. Uh, We have a tendency to assume that only a very select few people 
can actually bring God off the top shelf and give him to us. So our pastors or our priests become in some ways like spiritual bartenders who bring our, our Jesus juice off the top shelf and give us our shot on Sunday morning, but then take him away from us for the week. But the truth is, is we head to Easter, and I love Easter. Easter's coming up in two weeks. Can you believe it? It's coming up. When we go towards Easter, Jesus reminds us that he came to this earth to bring God off the top shelf and into our everyday lives. Because here's the thing. If God's on the top shelf, if God is some distant deity up there who we just learn about and study and hear about on the weekends— We might know more about God at the end of this year, but we will not experience the transformation of God in our lives. Because transformation only happens when God comes off the top shelf and into our everyday lives. When God begins to interact with us like like a, a perfect, powerful, loving, heavenly father engaging with his kids. And that's God's great desire is to interact with you every day of your life. And so I've been striving over these last few weeks to look at ways that we've put God on the top shelf of our life and then to bring God off the top shelf. So last week we talked about the Bible, uh, the big book. And I said, for a lot of us, that book is on the top shelf. And I tried to teach us some ways and inspire us to bring the Bible off the top shelf to allow God to rewrite some stories in our lives. Today what I want to do is I want to talk about, about church leadership. Because if we're not careful— and when I say church leadership, I mean, I mean the pastors, the pastoral staff in this church and in all churches. If we're not careful, church leadership has a tendency to view ourselves and to be viewed as top shelf. And that's not the way God designed it. God designed leaders to be in and among us, part of the community. And if we're not careful, our leaders start to look something like this. Take a look at the screens. Please, sir, we've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures. Think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? <laughs> if, if you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder who they are when you're talking about your pastoral team. If you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder why they made that decision, but I don't feel like I can go ask them about it. Then you've experienced, whether it's in this church or somewhere else, top shelf leadership. I realize that that pastors and priests have an incredible opportunity, but along with that comes incredible responsibility. I remember when I was 
in my early 20s, I was a college pastor at Sonoma State, and I had a student start coming to our ministry. She hadn't been to church in years since pretty early in childhood. And she gave her life to Jesus in this ministry that we were leading at Sonoma State. And I asked her, what brought her back to church? She said, a friend brought me back, because that's almost always the answer. A friend invited me. A friend brought me back. I said, well, what kept you away from so long? And she said, well, when I was young, I was sitting in church, and I was chewing gum in the sanctuary of my church. And the pastor looked at me and said to me, you're going to hell because you're chewing gum in God's sanctuary. And she thought, and that that marked her, that shaped her. That was a narrative that she wrote. She thought to herself, well, what's the point in going to church if I'm already going to hell? Now listen, pastoral leaders have, anyone, anyone, I should say, anyone who has the power in their minds or perceived by the people to condemn you somewhere or to raise you up has incredible power. And because of that, throughout church history, church leaders, pastors, teachers have accidentally put ourselves on the top shelf and by the church have been placed on the top shelf. And when we do that, top shelf leadership looks something like this. Top shelf leaders tend to view ourselves as parents in a church relationship, and view folks in the church as children. There's a paternalistic sort of view to it, uh, and when any leader views himself as a parent and the people in the church as a child, what do they do? They naturally shield the children from what's going on in the church. And so it's not necessarily uh, a malicious or a bad thing, and yet it's super destructive because anytime we don't know exactly what's going on within our community, we start to ask questions, and we start to have this mentality that separates us out. That's why I said to you, we're not parents. Uh, Please don't call me Father Kevin, because I'm young enough to be some of your grandchild, quite honestly. Kevin is just fine, or Kev Dog, or Big Kev Dog, Rev Kev. BKD, Douglas Danger is one of my favorites. I'll tell you that story another time. Danger is my other middle name, by the way, in case you were wondering. But Jesus, Jesus has a very different model of church leadership. Look what Jesus said to his disciples, his closest friends. He said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything that I've learned from my father, I want you to circle, underline, highlight, put an emoticon next to that, whatever you have to do. Everything I've learned from my father, and then underline or circle this next part, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that would last, so that whenever you ask in my name, the father will give this to you. And then he ends with this command, love each other. Here's what Jesus says when it comes to leadership, and this could be leadership within the family. This could be leadership with our children. This could be leadership in our company or organization outside, but this definitely has to do with leadership in the church. Jesus believed that complete transparency, complete transparency is the key and the best form of leadership. Notice what he says. Everything God has shared with me, I've made known to you. And I was thinking about that statement as a pastor, like through my lens. And I realized, uh, well, I said to God, 
Of course you could say that. You're Jesus, okay? The, the difference, one of the, the key difference, uh, we have a couple, um, but the key difference between me and Jesus and between our pastors and Jesus is that Jesus was perfect, perfect. He never made a mistake. That means any leadership decision he made, always right, all the time. You ever think about that? So everything he told the people was never wrong. Now your pastors, on the other hand, we make mistakes all the time. How many of you were in second service last week? Go ahead, raise your hand if you're in second service last week. All right. Um, I, I made a reference to the Bible being a big book, and I said, I like big books, and I cannot lie. Do you remember this last week? Yeah, that comes from an old uh, rap song called Baby Got Back. Now, there's a parody song on YouTube that says, I, it's called uh, Baby Got Book, and it's this guy with a Bible saying, I like big book, and I cannot lie. It's hilarious. And after first service, when that accidentally slipped out of my mouth, I thought to myself, that was hilarious. Like, that was really funny. So I said to our tech team, hey, after second service, could you play the song when the service ends of Baby Got Book? That'd be so funny. And there's the YouTube video, and they said, should we do the video? I said, no, we don't need the video. Let's just do the song. And so the service ended. I said, amen. Baby Got Book came on. And as I'm walking off stage, I realized, without the video, you cannot tell that this is not the hip-hop song, (laughs) Baby Got Back. And I'm internally freaking out. I'm standing right there thinking, how do I stop this train wreck? This is bad. People are going to leave the church. They think we're playing Baby Got Back. While it's catchy, probably not the most appropriate way to end a message. And here's what I thought, honestly, this is all going through my mind after I said goodbye to you. I thought, oh well, can't fix it, and I ran off stage. (laughs) Best thing to do. Run away! That's the only thing I could do. And I went back to our sound tech, and I said, uh, we probably shouldn't do that next service. He said, yeah, that didn't really work out like we thought. And I, I just said to him, epic pastor fail. That was an epic pastor fail. But at least it happened during our biggest service. So... We got that going for us. So I said, Jesus, I'm not you. To which I think God would respond, I know, I know. I don't think Jesus actually expected his leaders to be perfect, which is why I think he ends with the command he does. If we can go back to that passage again, notice how he ends it. He says, leaders, be transparent. Teach the church everything that you're learning as you're growing. And then he says this to his followers. And I give you this command, love each other. Love each other. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, says it like this. He says, I praise God. I'm overwhelmed with joy every time I think about you. That's a lot of his greetings uh, in the New Testament. And when he writes that kind of stuff, I honestly used to think to myself, Paul, you must not be referring to everyone in the church. No, because, like, how do you love everyone? How how are you overwhelmed with gratitude to God for everyone in the church? That's a lot of people. Paul planted all these churches. And I've been saying God to God recently for the last, I don't know, year or so. Jesus, would you help? Would you help? Would you give me the capacity to love that matches my capacity to lead? Because God's given me a capacity to lead our church well. And I've been begging him for a capacity to love our church. And he's been doing it. Here's how I know. Because every time I think about you, including right now, every time I think about you, I choke up. Because I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude to God for you. Every time. I was driving to church this morning, uh, praying for you. And start tearing up. I'm talking to groups of people throughout the week, and I'm just tearing up because... 
I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude for God, for each and every one of you. That's the kind of love I think Jesus is talking about when he says, love each other. And here's what he says to the church community. He says, leaders, be transparent. And he says, people in the church, love your pastors the way that we love you. And I wrote it down this way in our notes. Transparency and leadership works best when each of us, that includes me, that includes you, chooses to love each other, to trust each other. So when we don't always know what's going on, we choose to trust. We fill in that gap with trust to forgive each other when we make mistakes and to believe the best in each other. That's what God is doing in my heart towards you. That's what I believe God's doing in your hearts towards me and towards our pastoral team. By the way, if you wonder who is our pastoral team, if you go to our website, click on our leadership page, all of their pictures and bios are right there. You can see who this team is that I'm referring to. The church is the place where God invites us to do these one another things with each other. Love one another, forgive one another, care for one another, be vulnerable with one another, serve one another. So I thought what I wanted to do today, and this is where I just, I dropped my sermon. So what I want to do today is I just want to talk to you. I want to pull back the curtain. I want to get transparent about everything we're learning right now as a pastoral team. In an attempt to bring church leadership from here to here so that we can be excited about what God is doing together. I want to share some stuff we're learning in the journey. And to do that, I'm going to do another thing I've never done before, ever in like 18 years. I'm going to draw on the board like Pastor Ron does. Yeah, I'm kicking it old school like Pastor Ron. Don't clap yet. Again, you don't know how this is going to go. Trust me, trust me. So one of the things that I've been, I've been thinking about recently over the last two years since I became your lead pastor is what are the things we're great at as a church? What's our engine? What's that thing that we are just, we, we, we're really good at? And then what are some of our areas of growth as a church? Because every community, whether it's a marriage, a family, a, 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 a business, everyone has great strengths and then other growth areas. And the key of leadership is to identify the strengths and press into them to identify the growth areas and strengthen them. So here's the thing I think we're the best at. I think you'd agree with me. I think we're, the, I think we're really good That's a cross, not an airplane or a bird, just so you know. I think we're really good at helping people enter into our church. Like, this is what I call the funnel from someone who has either never been to church, never engaged with God, or maybe you had a church background and you're de-churched and you think church isn't for me. I think we're really good at inviting people to engage with God. Like, I, I, I think that we're extremely welcoming as a church. I hope that your experience was the first time you walked in, you thought to yourself, I could see myself fitting here. I think we're great in terms of the fact that there's no language that says these people are in, these people are out, but we're actually all in this together. That's the reason why you have a name tag when you walk in, by the way. And some of us love name tags and some of us don't, but the truth is you have a name. Your name matters. Your personhood matters. And so I don't want to just greet you as, hey there, friend, hey there, pal, good to, you know, if you're Pentecostal. Hey there, brother. Hey there, sister. No, I want to greet you by name. By name. Hey, Amanda, good to see you. Hey, I see you back there. Ron in the back, looking super intent. Pastor Ron, it's the second round of this message. You think I can't see you? I can. I can see you. Hey, Melissa, good to see you back there. You have a name. Your name matters. Why do we do that? I don't want everyone, anyone to walk into our church and feel like, do I really matter here? 
doesn't matter if we're 50 people or 6,000 people. I, I never want to lose that. And I think we're actually pretty darn good at walking people here. And here is a point where we make a decision to follow Jesus. I think we're really good at, at inviting people to experience God's transforming love. That's why I make an invitation to faith every week. Did you know I don't do that because I can't figure out a better way to end a sermon? I do that because when I was, I think, 23 or 24, I, had a, I was working at Sonoma State. Again, these, the reason I tell these stories is because they've shaped how I view church community. I had a student leader come up to me and say, I've been inviting my friend to church to, to our InterVarsity ministry worship services for about a month now. She's ready to give her life to God. She's heard what you've said. She wants to respond. So she said to me last week, I want to give my life to Jesus. But I didn't know how to lead her there. I didn't know what to tell her. And she said, and I brought her to our worship service and you didn't give her an opportunity to do it. So she's just hanging out there in limbo. And so every week I make an invitation for us to give our lives to Jesus, to enter into a relationship with him because I never know if today is your day. If you're sitting in that chair and the Holy Spirit's going to grab you today, you might have been coming for six weeks, six months, or six years, but today's the day something clicks. The Holy Spirit grabs you and you say, today's the day I experienced God's great love and his forgiveness, and I realize that there's more to this life than I've experienced on my own. And I never know if today's your day. And so I give that invitation because if the Holy Spirit is nudging on you, I want you to be able to respond. Now, could the Holy Spirit work around us? Absolutely, God can. But I believe the role of the church is to create streams with which the Holy Spirit can work through us as opposed to forcing him to work around us. So I think we're really good here. You know, that's why, why we say bring in coffee when you come to church. Bring it into the auditorium. Because the truth is you're more important than a carpet square. If you spill coffee on the carpet squares, we don't, we don't care. You can tell if you look around. We don't care. <laughs> but you know what? That's unique. A lot of churches would say in their actions, a carpet square is more important than you. We don't believe that. We believe you are of ultimate importance to God and to us. And we're really good here. And I think we're really good here. And I think we're, we're really good at helping people take some big steps of realizing that God didn't just save me from something. He didn't just save me from eternal separation from him. He saved me for something, for transformation in my life, to experience more. We're really good at helping people take next steps. We're good at helping people break through some big addictions. We're good at helping marriages that are right on the edge come back together. I think we're good at those things. But here's the thing I've experienced as I've been watching for the last couple of years. While we're really good here of walking with people to this point, we're really good to about here of some transformation stuff. There seems to be a drop-off right there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a person. This is a person. And I'm going to say that this person over here is a fully, uh, a fully transformed follower of Jesus or a fully developed follower of Jesus over here. And I would say a lot of us, we end up right here. And we think to ourselves, I want to get there, but I feel like I'm stuck. Something has stopped me from getting from here to there. And people try to get there and then they fall off and they go, ah! That's what they... That's how, how they fall. <laughs> because I have people come up to me and say, Kevin, I've been in the church for four years or six years, and I feel like I'm stuck, and I want, I want to grow. I want to encounter God. I want my life to be changed. I want to become a fully developed follower of Jesus, but I don't know how to get from here to there. And every time I try, ah, I fall down. And so sometimes people go to other churches that they, they believe will help them get here because they want something more. Other times, this is what breaks my heart, 
they don't go anywhere. They just stop engaging here. And then if you would ask them, hey, why'd you stop coming to New Life? They would say, I don't know. I just tried church for a while. I tried God, and it just didn't ultimately work. And they gave God one shot and fell. Now, here's what I believe. I can't, and the church can't, and your pastors can't, force you to go from here to there. Just like I can't force anyone to engage with Jesus here. But what the church's responsibility is to create avenues and venues to mark us, walk us to a place of commitment in Jesus, and then let you encounter God and be transformed. And I think the same thing is true in discipleship. That's what people are asking for here. I want to be discipled to be a fully developed follower of Jesus. And while, while we can't make you that or force you into that, I think it's our job to create a pathway to help you get there. So I've been asking with our pastoral team, how do we walk our church there so that we don't have any more, uh, how do we help people get here? And so we went back into the Bible because last week I said the Bible is there to transform our thinking, our stories. And we said, well, what's the role of a pastor? And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us the role of a pastor. It says Jesus gave to the church, Christ himself gave to the church apostles and prophets and evangelism, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And here's their role in verse 12, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ, this community of faith, could be built up until we've reached unity in the faith. That's that loving one another, believing in one another, forgiving one another. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That's this person here. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we've been asking this question. We're really good here. How might God want to develop us in discipleship here? Truth is, we'll never lose here. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them were there, here, and one of them went away. And you know what the shepherd did? What, what would you do? You'd stay with the ninety-nine. Because if you leave the ninety-nine, what happens if a wolf comes and eats some? You know what the shepherd did? He left the ninety-nine and went and got the one. Why'd Jesus tell that story? He did it to say this. That one person who does not yet know me is as important as the 99 who do. And I've seen churches who are great here, but they lose here. And we must never lose here because there are tens of thousands of people in our community who don't yet know Jesus. And the church, the church is called to create venues with which people could come to know Jesus. So we'll never lose this, but how do we grow in this? And we've been thinking about this phrase, relational discipleship. We believe that is the answer. It's a model that Jesus used. Relational relationships and discipleship, which is the process of training people to become fully developed followers of Jesus. And here's why those two have to go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Again, I'm just pulling back the curtain on things we're learning. Discipleship without relationship just becomes pointed and corrective and legalistic. Does that make sense? So so people have said to me, I'm stuck here. Maybe, Kevin, maybe your sermons were good enough to get me here, but they're not deep enough or directive enough to get me here. And I've thought that before. And I've thought, I just need to be more directive in what I tell people. But I realized that just came across pokey. That's just came not, that's not the pathway. Because discipleship without relationship 
is legalism. Do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. These are okay words. These are no-no words in the church. But that does not transform anyone's life. It just gives us more rules. On the other side of that, relationships without discipleship just turn us into like a social club. There's nothing wrong with social clubs. In fact, um, research that we've seen has shown if you plug into a community, a life group, a ministry team, those relationships will help you stick in the church longer than if you don't. Because relationships are important, but ultimately relationships without discipleship will just leave us here with more people around us and won't actually transform. So we need relational discipleship. And we've been asking, what are some venues with which we could do relational discipleship? Here's a couple things we've been thinking about. One, life group, uh, ministry teams. Ministry teams are a way. I believe ministry teams are one of the best ways for you to grow in your faith. And here's why. In ministry teams, when we're serving in ministry, we are using our spiritual gifts. Did you know that when you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit puts a gift inside of you that he invites you to use for the benefit of the church? But as you use it for this community, it actually it awakens something inside of you. A lot of us have jobs out in the world that don't, don't light us up, don't ignite us. They're a paycheck, and it's good, and it helps our families survive, but it doesn't light us up. But in the church— We're invited to experience what our spiritual gift is and use that. And God says that will light you up. So in ministry teams, we use our spiritual gifts. We're working with like-minded people who are serving together. Serving is a great opportunity to grow in our faith. And we're working with a pastor to help develop us in in our walk with Jesus. That's, I think, what ministry teams could be. But our experience at New Life has been that ministry teams have not been places of discipleship. And here's what we're experiencing it's because our ministry teams are actually functional work groups just to get stuff done. Does that make sense? So, so instead of being a team that is engaging with each other, we're a workforce to get a job done, to do children's ministry, to have enough life groups, to, to write name tags, to lead in worship. But the individual process of being formed as a follower of Jesus on that ministry team has been largely missing. And I found that people in our church who serve in ministry but don't experience that transformation end up burnt out after a couple years of ministry, frustrated with church leadership, and ultimately just want to get away. People leave the church, and it breaks my heart. And so we've had a paradigm shift with our pastoral team over the last seven months, and our executive pastor, Angela, has been leading the way in this. And the paradigm shift is this. Instead of ministry teams focusing on production, ministry teams are going to start focusing on transforming people's lives within the team. We're going to focus on people over production. And here's what I mean. If you've ever been on a ministry team and you've walked in late to your ministry, you may have experienced this before. Someone says to you, hey, are you okay? But here's what they really mean. Why are you late? Right? We've got ministry to do and you're late. So are you okay? And you're like, no, I'm not okay. I just got into a car accident and my marriage is falling apart. And they're like, okay, I'll pray for you. Now go serve the kids or whatever it is. That's production over people. But we're saying, what if we put people over production? And our pastoral team over the last six or seven months is grabbing hold of this and saying, yes, we believe that the role of a pastor in ministry teams is to train and equip God's people. So we believe that now when someone walks in and you say they're late, you say, are you okay? And they say, no, I'm not okay. My marriage is really struggling. Here's what we're starting to do. We're starting to stop whatever we were doing. Talk to that person. 
pray for that person, come around that person. All of a sudden, we have relationships formed and discipleship happening. And relational discipleship is key. The rubber hit the road for me. This was a great idea in theory. It hit the road, rubber hit the road back in October when we were planning our yearly calendar. And our worship pastor, Justin, who is, who is grabbing hold of this idea, he said, I want to invest in my worship and production teams as people. I want, to, I want to mentor my worship leaders. I want to invest in our teams. But I found that um, when we lead towards Good Friday and Easter, that we become work groups to get a Good Friday worship service done and an Easter service done and done well for the sake of the people out there. He said, well, I want to spend these next three months really investing in my people for the long-term health of our ministry teams. But I'm afraid that if we do Good Friday and Easter, we're just going to become a work group and we're going to lose three months of investing in our people for the long-term health of our church. So he said to me, what if, or could we, could we not do a Good Friday service for the sake of investing in our people this year so they don't get crazy burnt out? And I love Good Friday worship services. I love to see more worship services. I think a lot of us would. A lot of you come there and love it. But I recognized that for the sake of this paradigm shift, that is the right choice to make. So this year, we're not having a Good Friday worship service. And it's not because we don't believe in worship or don't believe in Jesus. It's because we believe in investing in people for the sake of their discipleship and growth and the long-term health of our church. And here's what I know to be true. Come Easter Sunday, Jesus will still have risen from the dead, even though we're not having a worship service. It's true and funny. So you can laugh and know that that's true. But that's what we're talking about. Okay, so ministry teams. Another one is life groups. Life groups. Life groups are a key place for relational discipleship to happen. But we realize our old paradigm was that life groups were 12 weeks long. And you can't form real relationship in 12 weeks. You just can't do it. So if you get into a life group with someone, you've been there three times, let's say. Uh, Katie and I are in life group together. Hi, Katie. We're not really, but if we were, we're in there for three weeks. All of a sudden, Katie's noticing something in my life that she thinks doesn't line up with God's best for me. More often than not, Katie's not going to say a darn thing to me about it because we don't know each other. But if she does say something to me, hey, Kevin, I've noticed this thing in your life that doesn't line up with God's best for you. How would that feel to you if someone said that to you? It'd feel critical and judgmental and you'd get defensive and I'd get defensive and we'd shut them down. Why? Because we have no relationship. That's great discipleship. No relationship. But what if Katie and I had been in a life group together for a year and a half and all of a sudden Katie knows that I love her. I know that Katie loves me and she says to me, Kevin, I've noticed this thing in your life that is not really lining up with God's best for you and because we have that relationship, now discipleship is happening. See, that's what we're trying to do with life groups. We've got this ongoing life group model happening right now where it's message-based, relationship-driven, ongoing. Life groups are these small groups of people that gather together weekly for the sake of building relationship so that relational discipleship can happen. Now, I'll be honest with you, when it comes to vision, I'm like a dog. It's like, I like this vision, then this vision, then this vision, then this vision. I could go everywhere and left to my own devices, I would destroy our church because of it. Because every month we'd have a new great hot vision for our church. But I recognize that wisdom says that we stick with a vision for a long time, which is why when it comes to life groups, six months in, I'm thinking, are the relationships formed yet? You know, like, if it's not working, we need to split off. And then I realized, wait a minute, Jesus spent three and a half years with his disciples. So it's willing to say that if Jesus took three years for relationships, we could take more than six months. That seems fair. So we're continuing in this method, this model, simply to try to increase relationships for the sake of discipleship. The third thing, that we're trying to do, and again, these are just bridges to help people become fully developed followers of Jesus. It's something called the Legacy Leadership Program. I learned something really big last year, and it's this. 
Clarity and consistency trump inspiration every day of the week. Here's what I mean by that. I don't think I've been very clear about what legacy is to our church. And I haven't been very consistent in talking about it. Here's what legacy is. Legacy is, it's a leadership development program where three of our pastors a couple years ago said, how could we develop leaders more? Well, we're going to pick a small group of leaders, seven or eight each. We're going to spend a year with them, developing them as followers of Jesus and developing them in their leadership skills so that they could go out and lead other people well. Seems like a great idea. The problem was, how do we invite those people? Because if I just put something on your, on your teaching notes that said the first nine people who signed up for this group are in, that would not work. So we hand-selected people. But because I wasn't clear on why we were doing this and how we were doing it, you know what I heard? I heard a lot of people got their feelings hurt. They said, why wasn't I invited into Legacy? How come they get to do it? This seems like a secret club. What's going on? And that's my bad. That's top-shelf leadership that keeps things back. Legacy is just a leadership development program. Someday, I would love anyone who wants to go through Legacy to be able to do it. The trick is to have enough leaders to have the bandwidth to make that possible. So every year, we've got a few more leaders and a few more people going through it, but it's just another tool for discipleship. Just another tool to empower you to get here. And the fourth one is this core curriculum. If someone came to me today and said, Kevin, it's my first time in your church, or I've been here for, you know, three weeks. My marriage is falling apart. What does God say about marriage, and how can the church partner with me? Here's the best thing I could tell you. I could say, hey, we just did a really great series called Modern Family. Go on the podcast and listen to that. That's all I've got for you right now. We'll probably do another marriage series in 15 months. That's the best I could say. That is not appropriate, in my opinion, to be able to partner with our church. If one of you came to me today, and said, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, and I'm drowning. What does God say about finances? The best I could say to you is, we'll probably do a finance series this fall. Keep treading water. I hope you don't drown until then. It's not appropriate for our church. What you're saying is, help me get here in key areas of my life. A number of us came to faith at New Life, which means we don't have a, a theological, a deeper understanding of how the Bible works and how to understand the Bible. You're saying, help me Help me understand the Bible more. The truth is, I can't do that here. Here on Sunday morning, we're very practical and intentional about what we teach because the truth is, we've got 12-year-olds in here right now. We've got 94-year-olds in here right now and everyone in between, people who have been walking with Jesus for 70 years and seven minutes and some people who don't, at this point, don't yet know God. So Sunday mornings are the place to get practical about life and faith. But that means we have to have another venue with which to talk about some of the deeper things of life and faith. And core curriculum, we think, is an answer to that. Core curriculum, Pastor Angela is working with a team right now to develop a baseline understanding of how people work, how people think, how we function, so we can create some classes, some teaching classes, some core curriculum, and some things we think Jesus followers would benefit from knowing that would help us get from here to here. And so what we're trying to do right now is we're just trying to create a pathway through these four things to help us, if you want to, walk Across. That's nice. They're walking across. So that no one falls in there anymore. Because the truth is, this is what God invites the church to do. Jesus, on his last, last days on earth, before he went to be with God the Father in heaven, he said to his followers, he said, as you're going through life, baptize people. Make disciples. Grab people who are here and lead them here. 
He says, and then teach them all I've commanded you. Teach them to follow and obey all I've commanded you. Take them here, take them here. A lot of churches are either great here or great here. I believe God's inviting us to be great in all of it because that's God's dream for the church. So a year ago, we said, yeah, clap it up. That's exciting. This is what it's about. So then a year ago, I said, that's going to take pastoral staff. We need staff not to do all the work, but to actually do the training and equipping and planning and to zoom out and think. So last year, about this time, we did this Me to We vision campaign where I said, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Would you pray about what your part is in this? Would you pray about giving faithfully to the local church so that God can do this? So we can hire staff and we don't have to fire them three months later because we have no money to pay for them. Do you remember this? And you guys did. You came together. We prayed. You made commitments to what you were going to give over the next year. And we set a budget and we were able to hire staff. And it's been so good for our church. Just the stuff we're talking about now. But then something happened. I've been your lead pastor for two years now. And everything we read about this position said that up to 50% of your church will leave within the first year of you becoming the lead pastor. Now, I hoped we would break that statistic, and we did. But here's the thing. When a founding pastor leaves and a new pastor comes in, usually 50 to 70% of the church leaves, which is why that next pastor that follows the founding pastor usually gets fired within the first two years. Because the elders team over them sees this major decline in people. And they think it must be your fault. So they fire him, they bring in somebody next, and that next person leads for a while. So I was a little bit nervous coming in after Ron because I really like you and don't want to get fired. Here's the cool thing. Most of you stayed. That was fantastic for the first year. And then something interesting happened. On year two, about 20 to 30% of our church left. And here's why. We stuck around for a long time because we love the church and we love Ron but I just wasn't their guy. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. When God calls a leader, he draws people to that leader. That's why there's always this transition with a leadership team. So 20 to 30% of our church left. I like to think that we grew other churches last year. That was fantastic. <laughs> but here's the thing. We backfilled with a whole another 20 to 30% of people, which is why when you look around this room, we're still pretty full, but you don't recognize half the people in here. And praise God for each of you. I'm so glad that God has brought each of you here. So glad. But you know what happened is when that that group of people who were here for a long time left, that was our giving base, and a lot of them left. And this new crew of us that have come in haven't started partnering with God financially yet because here's what people normally do. They come to a church, they give their lives to Jesus, they join a ministry team or a life group, and then they start giving. And that's a normal progression. It's a normal progression. But because of the people who left, our giving has kind of done this. But remember, we hired staff assuming our giving was going to do this. And so now we look towards the future and we realize if our giving stays where it currently is, by the time we get to September, our church is going to be $80,000 in the hole. $80,000 in debt. Now, no one's laughing about that. And that's appropriate. But here's the thing. $80,000 for one family is a lot of money. $80,000 for 500 of us or 600 of us, that's nothing. That's us coming together and partnering with God. And I don't for a second think that God's going to leave us here. Here's why. We're great here. We're great here. We have a plan to grow here. We're doing what God has called us to do. Why would he leave us now? We're in the best stages of our life as a church. We're 18 years old. We just became adults. We're exploring things. We're spreading our wings. Someone said this looks like a butterfly. We're spreading spreading our wings as a church right now. 
And here's what I want to invite you to do as we wrap our time up together. Two things. One is this. Actually, three things. One is this. If you're not invested in a ministry, I want you to invest in a ministry. Now is the best time for you to do that, to, to unlock your spiritual gift that God has given you, to invest, because we're not work teams anymore. We're groups of people who are learning how to walk with God together in the context of serving together. And if you have no idea how you would even start that, on the card that says start here on the back, where it says I want to apply, the second one down says, I'm going to invest myself in a ministry to experience God's work in and through me. If that's you, mark it down. I'll email you this week. I'll give you a list of all of our pastors, every ministry we have, and you can just start trying a ministry to see. I, I would love to see you invest in ministry. And then the next thing is this. I want to ask every one of us to, to seek God about our financial giving to this church and then to invest ourselves financially in this church because the church is the hope of the world. If we can do this and help people experience a changed eternity and do this and help people to experience changed life, this is what God has called the church to be. And God has called each of us to invest in the local church. God talks about tithing, giving that first 10% back to God. And I'm not saying you have to jump. That's like climbing Mount Everest for some of us. But I would ask you, pray about, pray about what your step is in giving to the local church. Because that $80,000, that's nothing as we bond together. So would you do that? If that's you, on your card, it says, I'm going to pray about my part in funding God's work through our church. If that's you, mark it down on your card because I want to pray with you. I'm asking God to do that in me as well. So mark that down. And the third one is this. I know some of us are here today. This is all brand new. Here's what I would say to you. If you're here and you're brand new to Christianity, this is all brand new stuff. I would say everything we do here and everything we do here is because of what we believe happens right there. Because we believe that you matter to God, that God made you and knows you and has a plan and a dream for your life. We believe you were never meant to walk through life on your own, but you were meant to walk through life with a heavenly father who wants to forgive you and love you and lead you. We believe that about God. We believe that God's marked out a place for you in eternity. And everything we do as a church is because of what we believe about God and about you. And that all starts as you enter into a relationship with him. As you give your life to him and start this journey, and you do that by praying and saying, God, I want to walk with you in relationship, and I want to experience your love and your forgiveness and your grace. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision, I'm going to pray right now and give you a chance to do that. So would you join me? Let's close together in prayer. If you're ready to make that decision, you can repeat these words after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and gave your life on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me how to walk with you every day from this day forward, even as I walk into eternity? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.